Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. So today I am going to talk about Swami Vivekananda to celebrate his birthday in India today and for us tomorrow. And the reason I want to talk about Swami Vivekananda is because I want to point out the great harmony of the East and West. And the building of that relationship was the sum total of Swami Vivekananda's life. Truly, his purpose was to bring us all together under the shared understanding of our own innate divinity and the divinity reflected back to us through our interaction, not just with each other, but with every experience of life. So unfortunately, I was very nervous for today's talk because I have no idea how I could ever do justice to perhaps the greatest saint India has ever produced in one short talk. His life is too extraordinary. Um, and I didn't know where exactly to start, how to end, which parts would be important to convey to you. Um, and there are so many legends that to choose one and not the other seemed a travesty. So what to do? What how to solve this predicament. And I thought, okay, the only thing, um, only place that would be appropriate for me to start with uh, regards to Swami Vivekananda is to tell you some of the core principles of the Vedanta philosophy, the philosophy that he championed and brought to the West. And the reason I share with you this philosophy is because it is the living, beating heart of all of our work here, and it is, to this day and age, as it is to any day and age, the most fructifying, galvanizing, and empowering philosophy to ever be laid before a person. Because it is a philosophy that sinks into the sea all notions of caste and creed. It rubbishes every idea of hierarchical thinking and reduces us all to one reality, and in this act of reducing, puts us on the greatest, most divine pedestal. Um, it obliterates all separation between internal world and outside world. It obliterates the idea of man and woman, king and peasant. And as such, it is an incredibly subversive philosophy. So as empowering as it is, it is also kind of frightening and a little bit uh, of an affront to institutions of power. So I have to start by telling you, be before the Upanishads and before the Vedas, this is something I don't usually talk about. It's a history kind of wreathed in mist and mystery. Um, but I want to say a word on the shamanic roots of yoga. And I don't talk about this a lot because we shouldn't really presuppose what the early shamans of the Indus Saraswati Valley were doing. There isn't a lot of data as to what they were doing. And so I don't want to be scholarly um, glib, uh, scholastically glib with that sort of thing. And I don't want to fill your head with any nonsense that cannot be supported by textual evidence, you know. So I hesitate to speak on these matters. A few points to consider, though. As the occult writer Liam Thomas Christopher points out, religion 
is what happens when spirituality encounters the urban civilized life and the desire of the ruling class to rule. So spirituality becomes religion when shamans are wiped out and priests are put in power to parrot back docile, defanged, and watered-down versions of shamanic rituals that in their original form were meant to free you of fear of death, empower you as a being, and give you courage and strength. But if you were to take those shamanic rituals and turn into a free-thinking, radical individual, how then can you be herded and organized into civilized life? And so necessarily, all great cultures, whether the Mesopotamian or the Indic cultures, had a version of shamanism that over time got diluted into a form of priestly elite um, pandering, which we in India call Brahmanism. So Brahmanism is the a phenomena whereby the deepest, most powerful ideas of Indian philosophy get taken away from the common people, dressed up in Sanskrit beyond anybody's comprehension, and locked away. Were the priests benefiting from them? Unlikely. In Brahmanism, we see a mechanistic kind of spirituality, where people are performing rituals without um, any understanding as to what those rituals are for. So when a culture starts to forget what the symbols point to and start to take the symbols too seriously, when the culture starts thinking that any rituals have meaning in of themselves beyond the flavors of consciousness they are meant to evoke, that's when a culture has lost its way and become uh, sterile. This happens to all great religions. It starts by a band, it starts usually with a band of misfits who are hated by the state, who are trying to tell people that they are powerful, that they can do it. And, you know, somebody gets crucified or burned or something like that. But in about a hundred years, that same philosophy that was so transgressive gets re-assimilated into the state regime, resold, repackaged, and made to seem, um, different. You know, so in that sense, you can see why Constantine, it would be politically good for him to adopt Christianity of the dissenters and resell it back to them as this like defanged version of obedience, you know. So we must start with yoga's shamanic roots. And we see some forms of these in uh, Tibetan practices like the Chode practice that only recently left the cultural landscape or practices of the Tantrikas who, you know, spent all night in graveyards so they could face their fear of death. We still have strains of these shamanic roots present in the culture. Now, to give you an example, there is a famous story of Prince Mahasattva. The story goes like this. One day, this powerful prince of a wealthy Indian nation was walking with his disciples. He was a very um, enlightened being. He was a spiritual teacher, an acharya, and young. He was a young, handsome prince. And one day he was out walking with his disciples and he came to a cliff. As he stood on the cliff, he noticed down, you know, underneath the cliff, there was a hungry mama tiger starving and she had her cubs with her. She was so hungry that she was about to eat her cubs. And he noticed this horrific dilemma that um, the tiger was in because she had two urges, one to survive and one to feed her cubs. Which urge should she fulfill? Prince Mahasattva was so 
touched by this uh, sight that he told his disciples, hey, you guys go on ahead, go and collect some firewood. I'm going to watch um, this drama for a little while. There's a lesson here for me. So he stood there and he looked down at the cliff, at the tigers, tigress and her cubs, and his heart started to beat. But he didn't know who the heart, whose heart was beating. Was it his heart or was it the tiger's heart? So great was his compassion that eventually he stepped off the cliff, plummeted to his death so the tiger could eat his flesh and ultimately take care of her young. You know, So this is a story that gets told to us as a story of compassion, self-sacrifice, this beautiful story of martyrdom. But as uh, I was reading recently, the scholar Liam Thomas Christopher points out, there are older strains of this story that paint a different picture. Prince Mahasattva is not um, a martyr. He's actually a sorcerer, a king of his people interested in being the best king he can be. So he acquires a tantric ritual in which he goes into the forest late at night, sits down and evokes his worst fears in the form of the tigers of his imagination. He feeds himself to those fears, as it were, offering his body up as a sacrifice in order that he might be dead in order to be reborn again. Prince Mahasattva's story is probably a metaphor for a certain kind of spiritual practice. And when you understand that it is a metaphor, you know that you too, in the quiet of your own bedroom, can perform Mahasattva's ceremony. You don't need a cliff and tigers. And the death here is the death of a limited, fearful self in scarcity. That's what that story is about. But you can see how the religion of the time dressed it up in order to uh, make it seem like this isn't for you. This is just some lofty prince. You're never going to aspire to those ideals of martyrdom. Those are saints. Who are you? You know, the same thing happens to the Buddha. The Buddha was a fellow who was deeply dissatisfied with the religion and Brahmanism of his time. So he went off and decided to do it on his own. And next week, we'll talk a lot about the Buddha and his secret, what it was that the Buddha discovered that allowed him to become enlightened. But there is a story that the Buddha put a flower or a candle on the river and he said, if this, if this flower runs upstream, then I will be enlightened. And as the story goes, of course, the flower ran upstream and he was enlightened. You can think of this as a story of extraordinary powers. The Buddha is a celestial king. He's not like you. He's a genius. He's a spiritual giant. And we're never going to be able to make the flower flow upstream. But when considered in its metaphorical sense, this is obviously a story of the flow of Udana Vayu or Kundalini, the idea that you raise your energy upstream, so to speak, so that it comes out of your head and you achieve samadhi or enlightenment. You know, so if seen in the sense as a spiritual metaphor, suddenly it's no longer a story of a great saint. You know, it's a story of man, story of you and me. So when I tell you the story of the saint, I'm not really talking about Vivekananda, if you can dig that. I will sing his praise today and tell you the story of how yoga came to America. 
But it is not a story about some far-flung hero from a distant land who soared to Empyrean heights that we will never achieve. It's a story about an ordinary fellow um, who was extraordinary because he was in touch with his humanity. The story begins, I think, with the Upanishads. And in the Upanishads, we get three really huge ideas. The first is that um, you are deeper in your authentic being than you might take yourself to be. The mind has a habit of only settling on the superficial level of things. So you take the most superficial level of reality to be the most real, namely your mind, body, and personality. But as you start to do some philosophy, that is, as you start to train your perception to look a little deeper, to pull back the curtain of life a little bit, you notice that there are three distinct states of consciousness that you experience. There is your waking life, you as you are now walking around, you know, with your personality in your life. There is your dreaming life in which you might not be who you are now. You might be a purple hippopotamus on Mars and tomorrow you're something else. And then there is your deep sleep life in which you are neither Nick Cook nor are you the hippopotamus. You are, I don't know what you are and you also don't know what you are. But when you wake up, you know that you had that experience. And this is because every time you wake up from deep sleep, you're not surprised. You don't freak out. You're not like, oh my God, where did all that time go? Or how did I get here? Something in you recognizes that you had the experience of deep sleep. So much so that you're able to say um, to someone, I slept like a log. I slept deeply. There's an I there, you know? I slept deeply. But who is that I? So one of the deepest ideas in the Upanishads is that you are not who you are in the waking state, nor are you who you are in the dreaming state. And you are certainly not what you are in your deep sleep state. You are something beyond all those three things. The Turiya, it's called the fourth. Turiya literally means the fourth. And that is what you truly are. A pure subjective sense of I without an object of awareness. This is the loftiest idea in the Upanishads. And notice that it's not dressed up in any religious jargon. There's no names of gods here. There's no superstitious ceremonies or rites. It's pure philosophy about psychological states and the implications of those states in your identity. With that being said, the Upanishads are an incredibly reasonable, intellectually rigorous, and philosophical series of texts. I propose this to you now. When religion loses its philosophy, that's when it descend descends into madness. That's when it descends into supernaturalism, superstition, and nonsense. Philosophy is the beating heart of religion. And if that is the case, then the Upanishads are the bleeding heart and beating heart of all that I'm going to talk about today. So that's the first idea, the question of who are you really? And the Upanishads just asks you to ask this, investigate this carefully. Who are you really? Once you come to understand that you are not the waker, 
nor are you the dreamer, and nor are you the sleeper, when you start to encounter that which you truly are, your next revelation is that you always were this, you were never not this, and in fact, only this exists. Kind of mind-blowing, because it takes the idea of God as a guy in the sky and inverts it and says, the sky came out of you, bruh. You know, the idea that this whole universe with all its gods and goddesses, fairies and all its various realms, they emanated out of your pure I-ness. Something inside you, which we call the Atman or the self, capital S, that is the absolute principle upon which the rest of this drama hangs. It is the only thing that is. That's another bombshell, isn't it? Um, and there's this huge idea. Atman, it's in you. Self, it's in you. And Atman equals Brahman. So this one is the all. Once you discover that, there's a third lesson that you get. And that lesson is the lesson of pervasion. So once you find this self, right, you might think, oh, this world is an illusion, you know, and Truly, there have been languaging around this world being illusion in the Upanishads. Maya, they call it, the great measurer. Its substance is, is dreamlike. It's a total fancy that only is real for you insofar as you haven't contacted the Atman or your true self. Once you contact this self, you awaken from Maya like a sleeper wakes up from a dream back into reality. So there's this idea that once you wake up, Suddenly, the world is torn asunder like morning mist in the first light of sun. And, you know, but that's not actually the case. As you learn from the Isha Upanishad, you realize after encountering your divinity that you pervade the entire universe. All things are made of a substance and that substance is you. Pure consciousness, pure blissful consciousness. And that's why we name this thing Satchit Ananda. Now you can see why um, this philosophy is known as non-duality. Since it pre pre presupposes that only one thing exists. That is you. It always was, always is, always will be. You can never objectify this thing since it is the one doing the objectifying. So it is that which cannot be seen but through which seeing is made possible. It is that which cannot be heard, but through which listening happens. It is that which cannot be spoken of, yet through which all speaking is happening. How mysterious, right? Now I'm getting into what we call mysticism. The way this philosophy is different from like your regular philosophy is that it has certain axioms that we will never be able to prove with logic, argument, or reason, though logic, argument, and reason are tools to help you see it. Dig that paradox. I know I'm moving a little quickly because I'm just rehearsing, you know, a few ideas we've talked about together before in order to lay the groundwork for Vivekananda. Now, if you take all of these ideas, this mystical idea of the Tao, that which cannot be spoken of, um, and of course, the Tao Te Ching opens with that line, as Sabrina will probably tell you, you know, um, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, because the Tao is that which makes speaking possible to begin with.
you know. And this philosophy, when it resurfaces in India um, in the Tantric period, anywhere between, you know, 3rd to 5th century BCE, uh, sorry, 3rd to 5th century AD, the Gupta period, uh, this is when the, this flavor starts to rise to the surface. Shankaracharya, the great saint, shows up. And he... <laughs> yes, that's the opening line. The mother of 10,000 things. Um, anyway, so he brought this philosophy to the forefront of Indian spirituality. But notice how some people are not going to take this philosophy lightly. Because if God is everything, you cannot condemn anything. If God is everything, no one is greater than any other person. If God is in everything, then all things are sacred and all ways of practicing are as good as any other ways of practicing. So here is the ultimate truth of the Vedanta's, Vedanta, my friend. If I say only one sentence and stop here for the rest of my life, this will be the sentence. I can put a full stop and that will be all that needs to be said. Here it is. It's from the Rig Veda, book one, not book, but text one, one six four. Um, Ekam Sat. Vipra Bahuddha Vadanti. Ekam Sat. Truth is one. Though sages call it differently. Do you see there are two levels to this truth? On one level, truth is one, meaning all religions everywhere are talking about the same thing in different ways. So the unity of man, the unity of religion, the great syncretic statement of our, of our time. But deeper than that still, metaphysically, truth, what is truth? It is one. Not that there is only one truth. Truth is one. Unity is the only thing worth talking about. Um, anyway, so that's the underpinning. Now we can talk about Vivekananda because this was the core of his life, to bring this teaching to the West. So let's go now to a period of India. It's the early 19th century. India is kind of in an in-between stage right now. The Muslims invaded around the 12th century and India is under Muslim Mughal rule for a while. It has benefited beautifully from Mughal rule. It's learned a lot of philosophy, poetry, and art from the Mughals. A lot of great art in northern India, like the Taj Mahal, that is a testament to the beauty and majesty of the great Islamic kingdom of the north. But India also suffered. A lot of tantric temples were burnt down. People were burnt at the cross for heresy. There was a religious war. This was a time of great struggle. Life was not certain. And naturally, like the times we have now, when things are uncertain, that's when spirituality thrives. Because then we start to question who we really are. Uh, we suffer only to the extent in which we cling. Once we cannot cling because we are torn away from that which we cling to, we start to ask questions. So philosophy loves times of struggle. Now, the Muslim rule is starting to collapse and the British are starting to take over. So we're in this like in-between between the uh, Muslim and British rules. So India as a nation, a conquered nation, and you know what? Thankfully so, because if it wasn't for the Muslims and the British, India would have degenerated into nonsensical Brahmanism, where a priestly elite would have hoarded away all this information and they themselves wouldn't even have known what it was about. 
mechanistically babbling their rituals. You know, so thank God India was rousted from its slumber by these invaders. You know, we have much to thank um, because it was an important slap on the wrist, you know. Um, but anyway, so here we are. India's in the state between the British, uh, between the Muslim and the British rule. And India's trying to figure out what it wants to be. You know, what is the soul and identity of the British nation? Who are we? And you can imagine, this is kind of like an adolescent trying to figure out um, who it's going to be in the world, you know? Now, enter Swami Vivekananda. He was born, um, Narendranath, to a prominent Indian family, an aristocratic kshatriya or ruling class family known as the Dattas. His father was a great lawyer, um, a legal uh, celebrity, if you will, who was a great lover of culture. So... Vivekananda, in his early years as young Narin, had his role model as a father who loved all cultures, like the father loved Hafiz, and he loved Rumi, and he loved all the 12th century Islamic Sufi poetry that he was learning. He loved the legalism and equality inherent in Islam, but he also loved all the Indian epics. His mother, Narendranath's mother and the wife of this great lawyer, was a lover of the Ramayana and Mahabharata, the world's oldest stories, wonderful stories of love and romance, the, the core of India's mythology. So Narendranath grew up in this kind of beautiful household of uh, um, syncretic kind of understanding, you know. As a young boy, he was precocious. He was a precocious youth. He used to play sports. He was very active. And he was a natural leader. So as a child, people just followed him. You know, he had a very kind of princely uh, stature. And of course, he was born to a princely family. Now, here's the beautiful thing. While Narendranath uh, grew to love his mother's, you know, devotion and his father's um, modernism, he was educated during a time of westernization in India. So soon his young mind began to become fascinated with the new uh, Western ideas like uh, Kant and Hegel and uh, Locke and Hume. And so he became quite a rationalist and that led him to atheism. So eventually he rejected um, the spirituality that he was born into because he started to see how India was a victim of religious dogma. He started to equate superstition, supernaturalism. And by the way, in this time of India, there was all sorts of barbaric rites, like uh, women who were widowed. Um, a few years before, they were jumping into the fire, performing a sati ceremony um, because their life was meaningless without their husband. Um, you know, the lot for women was really backward. The lot for the basic human being was backward because there was a caste system that meant that there was limited social mobility. Um, there was oppression and all sorts of horrific social circumstances. And a lot of that Vivekananda started to realize might have something to do with religion. It might have something to do with this Vedas nonsense, you know? So you can see in here a young uh, Richard Dawkins or a young Christopher Hitchens, a true humanist who is rejecting the supernaturalism of his grandfathers and embracing instead the modern value of ra reason and rationality. During this time in India, there was a movement called the Brahmo Samaj, 
Um, and this movement was a youth movement, a nationalist movement meant to free India from its colonial oppressors and establish a cultural identity. The Brahmo Samaj or Arya Samaj was interested in um, a spiritual India. So its leaders like Keshab Chandran Sen were interested in the Vedas, but in, in a kind of grounded way. You know, they didn't like all the rites and rituals and Brahminic elites so Vivekananda, as a young boy, got involved with these fellows. You know, he, he was in the circles of the intellects, the young Indian intellects of his time. Because India has such a deep uh, love for God, though, you can't, you can't really take that out of the Indian um, cultural uh, heart. You know, this, this desire to see if there's more to life than just material circumstances. Vivekananda also felt that and he wanted proof. He wanted proof of an enlightened being. You know, where were the Buddhas of his era? Where were the great Shankaracharyas and Mahavira Vamanas, you know? Who could he go to for authentic spirituality? Because all he had were sham Brahmin priests who were selling religion. Um, and all he had were dry intellectuals who rejected superstition. Where could he go? Enter Sri Ramakrishna Maharshi. So Ramakrishna, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, is known as the modern avatar and the last great world teacher. He was born in the early 19th century to a Brahmin family. Um, but he, from a young age, had a wonderful love for spirituality. He left home. He went off to be a, just a humble priest in a Kali temple. I'll have a whole lecture on Rama, 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 uh, Ramakrishna. Um, I, I said Ramakrishna, right? I didn't say Ramana. I sometimes say Ramana Maharshi. I mean to say Paramahansa Ramakrishna. So Ramakrishna has a very incredible spiritual story, a very incredible life. We won't really get into it here, except to say that he um, became enlightened under the teaching of a tantric female teacher. And then he met a Vaishnava a male teacher. He became enlightened through that path. And then he met a non-dual Vedanta teacher. He became enlightened through that path. And then he gave up all Hinduism, became a Muslim, only hung out with Muslims, only wore Muslim clothes, and became enlightened that way. And then he went and hung out with Christians. I think you're catching the drift. Ramakrishna wanted to discover if all the world's religions had some kernel of truth. And he discovered, much like the statement from the uh, Vedanta, truth is one, those sages call it differently. He discovered that in every religion, the path of salvation is there. Every religion is perfect in of itself. And when experienced directly, all religions turn out to be talking about the same thing. With varying nuances, and the nuances are important since different religions appeal to different people and pe people experience uh, spirituality differently. That's why there must be this diversity. But he appeared to teach that in that diversity, there is unity. Of course, much like many great world teachers, Ramakrishna was a bit frail. He wasn't the kind of guy to like preach. You know, he, he did one-on-one -on -one teaching and he used to talk to groups. But that's not really how he would teach. You know, the way Ramakrishna would teach is by going into trance states. So you would go and sit in his house 
And he would start to sing, he would swoon, he would faint, he would cry, he would shake, and you would all feel it. Everybody sitting in the house would feel a wave of spirituality wash over them. He thought almost entirely through vibes. He had the most immaculate vibe of anybody in our culture, you know? Um, and he gave some instruction to, and everything he said always pointed to this one thing. Truth is one. Truth is one. The paths to truth are many. And so if a Muslim came to him, he would speak to the Muslim on her terms. If a Christian came, he would speak on Christian terms. And he had different disciples and gave them different disciplines. You know, so he was truly a world teacher in that sense. Now, because he was kind of frail and eccentric and wasn't quite fit to teach this to the world, he needed um, a disciple, a, a, you know, kind of prime disciple. So legendarily, he went up to the roof and he went on the roof and he said, uh, by the way, he was devoted to Kali. That was his personal Ishta Deva or Ishta Devi. His personal God was Kali. So he went up and he said, Kali Ma, Mother Kali, send me strong men of India so they can carry this message of unity to the world. You know, now at this same time, you can imagine Ramakrishna calling into the ether somewhere else in Calcutta. That's where they all are in Calcutta. Somewhere else. Vivekananda gets a hint about this fellow named Ramakrishna. Someone tells Vivekananda in one of his intellectual circles or one of his musical circles, because Vivekananda was really into music. He was a musician too. Um, one of his musician friends or one of his intellect friends said, hey, you should go check out this uh, Ramakrishna guy. You know, I hear you're looking for saints, right? Check this guy out. Everyone says he's a saint. So Vivekananda went a skeptic. He was like, okay, I'm ready to sniff this charlatan out. You know, he went and supposedly when Ramakrishna saw Vivekananda, he, he started to cry. And he took Vivekananda by the hand, took him to the balcony and just stroked his hand and said, I, you have no idea how long I've been waiting for you. And of course, this freaked out the young Naren. He's like, ew, this lecherous old man, you know, so he ran away. But somehow or other, he kept coming back. This is actually one of my favorite definitions of a guru. How do you know when you found your guru? How do you know that this is your guru and not a teacher? You'll know because you actually won't like them at first, but somehow you keep coming back. And you don't know why. You just keep coming back. Something keeps bringing you to his or her feet. That's how you know your guru. Because on a personal level, you're probably disgusted by them. You know? <laughs> so this is the power of it. Vivekananda kept coming back to um, Ramakrishna. And in time, you know, I, I'll skip some details, but in time he became a disciple, but a very kind of um, strong-willed one. He refused to accept Kali worship. He saw that as nonsense. Ramakrishna said, it's okay. You can still learn with me. You don't have to accept Kali worship. Maybe it's not for you. But he used to say, one day you'll come around. One day you'll see, you know, and uh, there's a story. I'll just tell this one. Vivekananda used to debate with other disciples of Ramakrishna, mainly to undermine their superstitious beliefs. So one day he was sitting there and he said, Ramakrishna said, God is everything. Everything is God. How absurd. Do you mean to tell me that this jug of water is God? <laughs> you know, and him and his friend are all laughing about this. Ramakrishna walks in. He hears that and he says, what are you rascals? laughing about, and he puts a thumb on Vivekananda's head, pushes the forehead, and sends Vivekananda into Samadhi, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, gives Vivekananda a first-hand glimpse of this truth.
So that's how Ramakrishna used to tease Vivekananda, you know. So that's one story. Another one is um, Vivekananda's family, unfortunately, fell into hard, maybe fortunately, fell into hard times. His father died, um, but his father was a man of the world. So he spent a lot of money, um, maybe beyond his means. So they had a lot of debt. And this great family was plunged into poverty. There was no food to eat anymore. Vivekananda was poor. This was um, when he was truly tested. This is when he suffered the most and he became most atheistic. You know, this is when he just kind of became a nihilist in a way. So after a journey of philosophical struggle, Ramakrishna says to him, hey, go to the temple at this time, sit in front of the Kali statue and ask Kali for um, your family's well-being. Ask her, just go and ask her. She'll protect your family. And he was like, can't you do it? Can't you ask her for me? And he said, no, ask her yourself. So Vivekananda uh, legendarily goes to the temple and he sits and he prays and he gets his first vision of Kali. She appears to him and he's swooning with ecstasy and he runs back to Ramakrishna and he says, I saw her, I saw her, I had my first vision of Kali. And Ramakrishna said, well, did you ask for the money that your family needs? And Vivekananda was like, oh no, I forgot. And Ramakrishna said, go back now and ask. So Vivekananda ran back to the temple he did it. Kali came again. He swooned in bliss, ran back to Ramakrishna and forgot again. <laughs> so just one of those funny stories, the way Ramakrishna used to tease Vivekananda, you know. Ramakrishna's message was there are two um, impediments to your spiritual progress. One is lust, you know, seeking after things in the world. And the other one is greed. So that's what he used to say. He used to say, if you don't respect women, that's horrific. So for him, women worship was really important. He even, Ramakrishna had a wife, right? He even put his wife on the altar and prayed to her daily. You know, because to him, his wife was the physical embodiment of Kali. And he would tell his disciples, if you cannot see Kali in every woman you meet, then you are not fit for this practice. If you cannot see her as your mother, leave. You know, so he was very against lust, against seeing people sexually. You know, he wanted you to see the divinity of people. He wasn't against sex. He just thought that it was an impediment to your spiritual progress because he had many disciples who would like visit prostitutes and stuff and he didn't, he wasn't like moralistic about it. He was chill. He just thought that you would never um, go to the deepest parts of your existence if you were stuck by lust and greed, you know? So that was his teaching. Vivekananda was nursed by him. And sooner, uh, soon Vivekananda kind of became uh, the leader of his band of monks, you know? Um, and one such story is Ramakrishna got throat cancer. You know, so that was one of the hardest things for the disciples of Ramakrishna to accept. They had seen their great teacher perform miracles on others. He could heal people and he did it in front of you. But why wasn't he healing himself? I mean, surely if you're so great, Ramakrishna, why do you have throat cancer? You should be able to heal this, you know? And Ramakrishna famously said, no, 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 it's the body. The body needs to deal with its karma. I'm not going to heal it. And all the monks started to become scared, you know, of contagion. They were worried they would catch it because they could see it was a really horrific disease. So one such story is one day, um, Ramakrishna was in bed, very feeble. And the cup of water that he just drank mixed with his saliva was on the table. And young Naren, then his name was Narendranath, in order to prove a point to all the monks around him who were starting to lose faith, picked up that cup and drank it. 
you know. He was like that. He was very strong and fierce. And naturally, he became um, this uh, leader amongst his monks. Ramakrishna, therefore, um, reformed the ancient monastic order known as the Swami order that was formed by Shankaracharya. It is to date the world's oldest monastic order. And today it's called the Ramakrishna order or the Ramakrishna mission. And I'll show you its logo. This is its logo. It's a snake and there's a rising sun, a lotus, water, and a swan. So this symbolizes that through the lotus of bhakti yoga devotion, combined with the knowledge of philosophy in jnana yoga, encircled by the serpentine powers of kundalini or hatha yoga, upon the wavy ocean of karma yoga, you would find the freedom of a swan, which is a symbol of a liberated soul. You know, so Ramakrishna's name was Paramahansa Ramakrishna. The great free swan. So Vivekananda, he's the leader. Oh, my roommate got locked out. He's the leader of this great band of monks. And eventually he starts to um, travel India. So many years he spends just wandering India this way and that. And this trip was important to him because not only does he meet saints, you know, like Himalayan yogis, he also meets the poor, the global poor or the poor of India. And this grounds him in the actual suffering of his nation, a suffering brought by supernaturalism, caste system, um, backward thinking, you know, a suffering of a nation that for far too long has been bullied, torn apart and conquered. You know, and this kind of broke his heart. Eventually, he got the idea. One day, he traveled the whole India, you know, and one day he's sitting meditating on a rock. You know, every time I go to Palos Verdes, there's that promontory of rocks, and I'll go and sit on the edge, and I imagine that just must be how Vivekananda sat at the very edge of India by the sea. And that's when he realized he had to go to the West. He knew that in the West, they had science and technology and social empowerment. But while the roads worked and the electricity worked, the hearts were broken. It was luxury without meaning. People were searching for an answer there. But in the East, he saw that there was gems of spiritual insight, philosophy. Uh, but these people don't need Vedanta. They need bread. They need social empowerment. So we humans are being crucified in different ways in different parts of the world. So Vivekananda finally got together his funds and he went uh, a Maharaja sponsored him and he went to America. Of course, he went to speak at the Parliament of World Religions, uh, which was being held in Chicago at the time. Naturally, he arrives um, six months or he arrives in June, I think, and the Parliament is actually in September. So he arrives too early. They got their dates wrong. In all India's excitement to send him, they forgot to register the fella. So he arrives in Chicago unregistered, no way to speak at the Congress. Um, so he doesn't know what to do. Dejectedly, he takes a train down to Boston because it's cheaper to live there. On the train, a woman notices his uh, yellow orange robes. And the woman asks him, are you a Hindu? Are you a Swami? And he says, yes. She gets excited because her husband is a Greek professor at Harvard or something. And they have an interest in that stuff. 
So she invites him over as their dinner guests, totally by chance. And they eventually get him into the parliament. Now, another coincidence, he gets to Chicago on the actual day of the parliament, the day before. He doesn't know where it is. He lost the address. Um, nobody speaks, uh, he was in a German quarter in Chicago. No one speaks his language. So, you know, he slept um, in the railway station. He wandered around and he didn't know where to go. That he eventually just sat on a sidewalk, you know? He just like sat down on the sidewalk and someone, of course, noticed him from across the street and said, you, you look funny. You're dressed as if you're speaking at the parliament that's happening later. I'll take you, you know, <laughs> isn't that sweet? So through these synchronicities, he eventually was brought to the parliament in uh, 1893. This was a parliament where America would, for the first time, gather all of its greatest intellectuals, you know, great philosophers from Harvard, and they would all gather and listen to ideas from different sects. Gandhi was there representing the Jains. Annie Besant of the Theosophist was there. Um, all the great world leaders, religious leaders were there. Vivekananda was there to teach the message of Vedanta, you know, so... He was number 31 on the list. He was very nervous. He didn't want to go and do it. Eventually, they kind of pushed him up on stage. He went over there. And these were the opening words of Vedanta in America. Mark them carefully. The first words of philosophy spoken here in the West from India were, were these. My sisters and brothers of America. And he got a standing ovation for that because he was the first speaker to not be formal. He just informally addressed people, just went out with it. He said sisters first before brothers because he had learned from Ramakrishna to honor the, the sacred feminine. You know, so he just, that was it. In that statement is probably all the philosophy you need. Anyway, to conclude today, know that Vivekananda went on to found many important institutions here in the West. He thought doggedly, giving class after class. Eventually, they rented rooms in New York in the poor quarter. And he used to live and teach out of a small room. And so powerful were his philosophies that there were too many people for the building. And they'd be lined up in the bathroom and in the hallways. He did speaking tours all around America. He talked to materialists and rationalists, beating people in debates, not on religious grounds, but on their own grounds. He managed to show the limits of rationalism, show the limits of science. And he showed the world that behind all this supernaturalism, there was a living, breathing philosophy known as the Vedanta. To close today, um, and we'll do a part two because I think his work in America was very important. Next week, I want to tell you a little bit about Emerson and Thoreau and talk to you a little bit about America's identity because America, after the Civil War, kind of lost it. But before the Civil War, the three great saints of America, Thoreau, Emerson, and Whitman, to me represent the central thrust of pioneer um, idealism. And we'll talk about it next week in a lecture called The Great Saints of America. You know, in our third lecture, I will finally show you all the connections that bring together the East and West. To close today, though, since uh, we are soon to go into a Reiki um, initiation uh, with in a different Zoom, which are all welcome to, of course, but we are um, going to close today 
with just a few of Vivekananda's own words, if you will humor me, if you don't mind. Um, I will read to you now out of Swami Nikilananda's biography of this great saint. And I'll put that in the chat in a little bit. And I just want to give you a taste of the flavor of this man. So here's this first passage I want to read to you. It's in a letter from 1894. And this letter is really important because it captures kind of the heart of what he was trying to do here. It goes, Let each one of us pray day and night for the downtrodden millions in India who are held fast by poverty, priestcraft, priestcraft, and tyranny. Pray day and night for them. I care more to preach religion to them than to the high and to the rich. I am no metaphysician, no philosopher, nay, no saint, but I am poor. I love the poor. Who feels in India for the 300 millions of men and women sunken forever in poverty and ignorance? Where is the way out? Who feels for them? Let these people be your God. Think of them, work for them, pray for them incessantly. The Lord will show you the way. Him I call a Mahatma, a noble soul, whose heart bleeds for the poor. Otherwise, he is a Duratma, a wicked soul. So long as the millions live in hunger and ignorance, I hold every man a traitor who, having been educated at their expense, pays not the least heed to them. We are poor, my brothers, we are nobodies, but we such have always been the instruments of the Most High. You know, what a, what a lovely sentiment. Um, next, I wanted to read to you uh, his ideals on his organization. So what the Vedanta New York or Vedanta Center is in philosophy. We have no organization, he says, <laughs> nor do we want to build any. Each one is quite independent to teach, quite free to teach, whatever he or she likes. If you have the spirit within, you will never fail to attract others. Individuality is my motto. I have no ambition beyond training individuals. I know very little. That little I teach without reserve. Where I am ignorant, I confess it. I am a sannyasin. As such, I hold myself as a servant, not as a master in this world. You know, so those are his ideas on organization. Now, this next one's pretty important because it is his philosophy on colonization. So it's important because this is a great Indian saint commenting on colonization, which I think is quite culturally relevant today. Here is his comment. The British Empire with all its evils, is the greatest machine that ever existed for the dissemination of ideas. How broad-minded. I mean to put my ideas in the center of this machine, and it will spread them all over the world. Of course, all great work is slow, and the difficulties are too many, especially as we Hindus are a conquered race. Yet, that is the very reason why it is bound to work. For spiritual ideals have come always from the downtrodden. The downtrodden Jews overwhelm the Roman Empire with their spiritual ideals. You will be pleased to learn that I am also learning my lesson every day in patience and above all in sympathy. I think I'm beginning to see the divine even inside the bullying Anglo-Indians. I think I'm slowly approaching to the state where I would be able to love the very devil himself if there were even such a thing. You know? 
And I will close now. And that was from 1896 to a, uh, in a letter to Mrs. Leggett. And I will close now with this last phrase, um, which I think will end us quite nicely. And it's from 1896, one of his final few letters, actually, since he died quite young, which we'll talk about next week. Here's the letter. At 20, I was a most unsympathetic, uncompromising fanatic. I would not walk on the footpath on the theater side of the street in Calcutta. At 33, the age of Jesus, I can live in the same house with prostitutes and never would think of saying a word of reproach to them. Is it degeneration? Or is it that I am broadening out into that universal love, which is the Lord himself? Some days I get into a sort of ecstasy. I feel that I must bless everyone, every being, love and embrace every being. And I literally see that the evil is, an, that evil is a delusion. I bless the day I was born. I have had so much kindness and love here, and that love infinite who brought me into being has guided every one of my actions, good or bad. For what am I, what was I ever, but a tool in his hands, for whose service I have given up everything. My beloved, my joy, my life, my soul, he is my playful darling, I am his playfellow. There is neither rhyme nor reason in the universe. What binds him? He, the playful one, is playing. These tears and laughter are all parts of the play. Great fun, great fun. It is a funny world. And the funniest chap you ever saw is he, the beloved. Infinite fun, is it not? Brotherhood or playmatehood? A shoal of romping children let out to play in this playground of the world, isn't it? Whom to praise? Whom to blame? It is all play. They want an explanation, but how can you explain him? He is brainless, nor has he any reason. He is fooling us with little brains and reasons, but this time he won't find me napping. I have learned a thing or two. Beyond, beyond reason and learning and talking is the feeling, the love, the beloved. I, sake, fill the cup and we will be mad. Yours ever in madness, Vivekananda. All right, my beautiful friends, thank you for um, being here with me today, especially to all of our new friends who are just joining us. I usually have um, question time, you know, for the next hour or so. Today, I will have to um, humbly ask for your leave. I um, have to go and see Nick and Grace and Austin and, you know, we got some, some stuff to do. And um, before I end, though, I welcome you all to join us for a final OM. Perhaps you can bring to mind all those teachers or all those moments that have brought you here to this moment and to all the other teachers that you will meet and ultimately to your guru, wherever he, she or it might be. So let's bring the hands over to the heart now. Calling up all that which is sacred to you. Bowing the head, honoring the divinity that is you, that is only you, let us inhale to this final Om.
Thank you for another great episode of For the Love of Yoga. To get in on the discussion, you can find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more episodes and more content. Stick around for some question and answers throughout the end of the rest of this podcast. And I hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace, peace, peace.